Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you allow sinners like us in the presence of holiness. God, thank you so much for that beautiful promise that says when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst you. And Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you for what the Bible says in Titus chapter 1, that you cannot lie, God. Thank you. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And Lord, we just pray and ask that you would bless us now with the Holy Spirit, that you would guide us to all truth. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, I was going through the question box, and I noticed that there was a couple questions that were there. And they were essentially asking the same thing. It has to do with one of the topics we covered Saturday night. And it was this. When it comes to the state of the dead, what happens to people who've been cremated? When it comes to the resurrection of the dead, what happens to people who have been cremated? Well, take your Bible. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to show you something remarkable from the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the epicenter of the resurrection motif throughout all of Scripture. Paul spends a lot of time talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 1109. Are we all there? Amen. Now let's start with verse 50, page 1110. Here we go. Now I say, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit what? Incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last what? Trumpet. So what instrument accompanies God at the second coming? The trumpet. That's exactly right. Now let's keep going. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. What's that next word? Incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when are we given immortality? At the second coming of Jesus, when that last trumpet sounds, and all the dead that have been sleeping will be awakened by that mighty noise, bum ba da and it will awaken all the dead from their sleep. But watch what Paul says right here. It's very remarkable. Look again at verse 53. For this, what's that next word? Corruptible, talking about himself. Now the word corruptible simply means subject to decay. Subject to decay. Notice what he says. For this corruptible must put on what? Incorruption. So what is he saying? He is saying that our bodies, because of sin, are subject to sin and to death and to destruction and to decay. When you get older, you begin to realize that your leg doesn't work as well as it used to. Your arm doesn't work as well as it used to. The only thing that still works is your mouth. Well, here's the thing, folks. One thing to understand is that all our bodies are subject to decay. Amen? But it's at the second coming that we're given brand new bodies. God is not dependent upon your mortal body to resurrect you and to give you a brand new body. You know, many of the reformers, like Martin Luther, when Martin Luther died, it was several years after that the Roman church actually took his, his bones, they actually grinded it up to dust, and they spread it all out throughout different rivers, and they said, may he never be resurrected again. But folks, do you think that's going to stop Jesus from resurrecting Martin Luther? Absolutely not. God is not dependent upon the physical part of the body, the condition of the body at the time of death. God is not dependent on the location of the time of death when he resurrects them. Can you say amen to that? And what a mighty day that will be when Jesus raises the dead and we're going to see people from the ocean rising up and from the land all over the world, God's people rising up at the second coming. Amen? Amen. Well, let's get started with tonight's message, The Antichrist Exposed, Part 1. The Antichrist Exposed, Part 1. Tomorrow night is going to be The Antichrist Exposed, Part 2. We're going to discover the Antichrist's identity from the Word of God. However, we're going to elaborate more on that identity. So you may hear things tonight that is going to challenge you. You're going to hear things tonight that's going to really push you. 
But I just want to challenge you and push you to examine the scripture for what it's saying. Amen? Because we build our faith upon the word of God. Can you say amen? And that's what we want to trust, the word of God. When it comes to the Antichrist, you go to different people out on the street, and if you were to ask them, who is the Antichrist, you'll get so all sorts of theories about who the Antichrist is. Some people believe it's some Middle Eastern dictator that's going to rise up and cause a lot of problems for Israel. Some people believe that it's the current president of the United States. Depending wherever you go, you're going to hear different opinions about who the Antichrist is. Unfortunately, now pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. Unfortunately, that biblical term, Antichrist, has now become a joke in the modern political world. It's often used to describe somebody you just dislike. And so what's taking place is the very mention or study of the Antichrist subject simply leads people to joke and laugh about the topic. But folks, we need to understand how serious this is from the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? You'll find in our culture today, you have a lot of different ideas and opinions about the Antichrist, a lot of different movies and books that, that, are taught, that are all about the Antichrist subject. You'll find millions of dollars have put in production concerning the Antichrist about the end of time. In fact, when you go down to the Christian bookstore, you'll find they actually have a large section that just deals with the Antichrist motif. But we need to get our answers from the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? Now, do you remember what we talked about when we covered some of the topic about the Antichrist? We discovered that there are several names given in the Bible for the Antichrist power. And here are some of the names. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 says, he's called the man of sin. Number 2, he's called the lawless one. Why is the Antichrist power called the lawless one? Because he has a problem with what? God's law, that's exactly right. He's called the lawless one. In fact, we'll discover that one of the characteristics of the Antichrist is, is that he's trying to attack, or as the Bible says in Daniel chapter 7, intend to change times and law. He has a big problem with God's law. Folks, I want you to pay attention to this. Who is the real instigator behind the Antichrist, though? Satan, and we learn from 1 John chapter 2 that Satan sinned in heaven. And the Bible describes sin in 1 John chapter 2. What is the description of sin? Sin is the transgression of God's law. So the real one who has a problem with God's law is the devil himself. His front man is the Antichrist. We'll also discover that one of the terms for the Antichrist is the beast of Revelation 13. The beast of Revelation chapter 13. A lot of people are interested in the mark of the beast. They talk about the mark of the beast like a tattoo or a microchips. But folks, you need to first identify the beast before you can identify the mark of the beast. Does that make sense, yes or no? You also discover the Antichrist is called the son of perdition. Who else in the Bible was called the son of perdition? Judas, which lets you know that this Antichrist is somebody who is like a Judas externally religious but internally corrupt externally religious but internally corrupt you also discover that one of the names of the antichrist is the little horn power of daniel chapter 7 daniel is a prequel and revelation is the sequel daniel is the prequel and revelation is the sequel and the book of daniel helps us to identify the characteristics of this antichrist power now, let's take a good look at the very word Antichrist. You go to any concordance, and you can go to 1 John, where the word Antichrist appears, and you'll discover that the word anti does not mean one who outrightly opposes, but one who tries to take the place of. In other words, an attempted substitute. Now, this is very important. The reason why it's very important, when people are trying to identify the Antichrist, they're looking for somebody who outrightly opposes the name of Christ. But the Bible teaches, and you just look at any Greek concordance, that the word Antichrist is not somebody who's attempting to oppose Christ, obviously, but somebody who's trying to take the place of Christ. But folks, can anybody take the place of Christ? 
Nobody can. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. There is only one Jesus. Can you say amen to that? Now let's do a little bit of review here before we just jump off into the talk of, topic of the Antichrist. Do you remember when Daniel discovered or helped, helped Nebuchadnezzar understand his dream, right? Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? He had this giant dream of a metal, metal man statue. And we discovered, we turned that metal man over, that it's actually a timeline. And that head of gold represents what? Babylon. That's exactly right. We learned that that chest of silver represents what? the Medio persian Empire, and then we discovered that that, that thigh represents what? Greece, and we also discovered the legs of iron represent what? Rome. And then we discovered at the very end of this prophecy that there would be a stone cut without hands and it would strike the statue at the base. And do you remember what the feet were made out of? The feet were made out of what? Iron and clay. That's exactly right. And by the way, if you missed night number one, I just want to challenge you to take a good look at that. You can see Lily. She'll get you the study guide. Or you can see Glenn, and he can help you get an audio recording of that. And we discovered the feet of iron and clay represents a divided world. It represents a what? Divided world. And we discovered that that's from AD 476 all the way to present day and it's during this time that Jesus returns. Amen? And we are living, what, what do we say in the very first night? The proverbial toenails of time. That's exactly right over there. I always love that chuckle coming from you, Alex. Okay, very good. Very good. Okay, now with that review, I want you to see something very important, okay? We discovered that after Rome broke up, there were ten tribes, right? And seven of those tribes are European nations today. Anybody can just take a simple history book and see the timeline that Daniel predicted. This is so remarkable because when skeptics look at the book of Daniel, they're astonished about how accurate the book of Daniel is. And why is that very important? Because there's a very simple principle in scripture. It's called repeat and expand. It's called repeat and what? Expand. Oftentimes, in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, God will give a prophecy, and then what he will do just a little while later, he will repeat the exact same prophecy, but this time expand it and add more detail. Like taking a man who is just a skeleton and adding on his, bone, or adding on his bones muscle and flesh, what God is seeking to do with Bible prophecy is to lead the students of the scripture to understand key points. To understand key points. So what God is going to do in the book of Daniel, he is going to repeat the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 2. However, he is now going to enlarge it and add more detail that is crucial for the people of end time. All right, everybody, take your Bible. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7, page 864. Okay, now let's start with verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had dreams and visions of his head while he was on his bed. This time, who's having the dream and the vision? Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, it was Nebuchadnezzar. But this time, Daniel is given the dream. Well, let's find out what Daniel sees. Daniel, verse 2, spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each one different from the other. The first one was like a what? Lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So Daniel sees in this vision, he first sees this mighty lion with wings, and all of a sudden this lion stands up on two feet, and the Bible says a man's heart was given to it. Now watch what else Daniel sees as he's watching this strange sight. Verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. So Daniel's all of a sudden the scene changes and he sees this unusual looking bear. And the bear is just hunched up on one side and it has three ribs in its mouth. And Daniel is watching this strange sight when all of a sudden he sees something even more stranger. Verse 6, 
And after this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And all of a sudden, Daniel sees this four-headed leper with these wings, very swift. And as Daniel is watching this curious sight, watch what he sees next. Verse 7, And after this in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible. Something's unusual about this beast. There is not even a description of this beast. Daniel can't take any species and identify this strange-looking beast. So he continues. Terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had what? Ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. So as Daniel is watching this strange sight, notice the sequence. He sees this unusual lion, this majestic animal, and all of a sudden he sees this crooked-looking bear, and then he sees this four-headed leper, and finally he sees this strange-looking, we could even call it just a Tyrannosaurus Rex of a creature, and all of a sudden, the scene focuses to his head, and there are ten, ten horns. And all of a sudden, as Daniel is watching the strange sight, one horn comes up and uproots three of the horns. So what did Daniel see in Bible prophecy? Do you remember that simple principle we learned in the book of Daniel? Repeat and what? Expand. What God was showing Daniel was a repetition of that vision found in Daniel 2. However, there was extra detail. Now watch this. You'll discover that those four creatures represent the four world empire. But it's that strange little horn that we're going to hone in on tonight. That first beast that Daniel saw was that majestic lion with two wings. And it represented the nation of Babylon. And they reigned from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. And if you look at a lot of Babylonian archaeology, you'll discover they had winged lions all over, all over the location of Babylon. That bear that was hunched over one side represented the medial Persian Empire because the Persians had more power in their empire than the Medes. And the three ribs in their mouth represented Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt, the three entities that actually stood in the path of the Medo-Persian Empire, Empire's domination. But they conquered them. However, we discovered that there would be another world empire that would come, and it would be Greece. Do you remember when Alexander the Great led Greece? When he finally died, how many of his generals took over the, the Grecian Empire? Four. That's exactly right. And that's represented by the four-headed four leopard. When Greece came on the scene, they came on very swift, very quick, and conquered all their foes. And that final, final beast that Daniel saw represented the nation of Rome. The nation of Rome. Rome was very terrible. Rome was also responsible in one sense for the crucifixion of Jesus. The Bible describes in Daniel chapter 2, iron. You also discover in this beast that he is, also has iron appendages as well. So we discover the four world empires being repeated. However, what is God adding to this second vision? God begins to add some detail that was not found in Daniel chapter 2. He begins to describe the little horn power. And it's this little horn power that we need to discover the identity of. Now watch what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 24 through 25. The ten corns are ten what? Kings or kingdom who shall arise from the kingdom. We discovered that when Rome was divided, that Rome divided into ten different tribes. Ten different tribes, exactly what scripture said. And another, this is the little horn power right here, another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three, what? Kings. So we discover this little horn power of Daniel chapter 7 actually uproots three of those tribes. And folks, what's remarkable about Bible prophecy is that there only remained seven tribes when Rome was divided. 
seven tribes still to this day, we're going to discover the little horn power that actually uprooted three of those tribes. History and Bible prophecy go together. Can you say amen to that? Look what it says right here. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. This little horn power is very arrogant. The Bible teaches he speaks pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. This little horn power not only has a problem with God, but he has a problem with God's people and shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Now, folks, I want you to see these characteristics because many times we'll go through a Bible prophecy seminar like this and we'll show the scripture exactly how it reads and then you're going to see history exactly how it is and still people will see how accurate it is and still walk away from it saying, I don't want to believe it. But folks, that's a dangerous place to be. We ought to believe it because the word of God says it. Can you say amen to that? I've heard a lot of different excuses sometimes from people. Well, that's your interpretation of it, or that's somebody else's interpretation of it. And oftentimes that is used to excuse what the Bible is saying. But folks, here's the thing to understand. You're going to be judged on the basis of how you are connected to the Word of God. And what God reveals to you, He is revealing it for your own good. Can you say amen to that? You know, I was born and raised a Hindu, and about 11 years ago I became a Christian. And in Hinduism, there are over 300 million deities. You go to our house down in Southern California where my mom lives, and you'll discover we have different idols all over the house and different pictures of Hindu holy men that are revered. When I begin to learn the truth about what the Bible teaches about the nature and character of God, I was blown away at first, and sometimes some things were very difficult for me to accept. But as I begin to trust the Word of God, I learned that God is a God who can be trusted. Can, can you say amen to that? I love what Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon what? Your own understanding. The Bible teaches, hey, don't trust your own understanding, but trust the word of God. Can you say amen to that? Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. Can you say amen to that? And folks, we need to trust the Word of God. Now, I want you to pay attention to these characteristics because it's extremely important that you see what the Scripture is teaching. Okay, number one, we discovered that this little horn power would devour the whole earth. We discovered that he would uproot three groups or three tribes. We also discovered he would speak pompous words against the Most High. We also learned that he would persecute the saints of the Most High. We discovered that he shall intend to change times and laws. Folks, I want to stress this point again because I really believe it's important. And it's this. We need to trust the word of God. We need to trust the word of God. Oftentimes, you're going to hear a lot of different opinions about the Antichrist, a lot of different theories about the Antichrist, a lot of books written about the Antichrist. But folks, we need to go to the word of God for the discovery of the Antichrist. Can you say amen to that? The word of God is our hope. Again, we see that same principle called repeat and what? Expand. We're going to see God repeating essentially the same prophecy and again adding more details. And the reason why he is adding more detail, because he wants us to be absolutely sure about the identity of the Antichrist power. Can you say amen for God's faithfulness? Praise the Lord, folks. We can take what the Bible says and we can know for a fact what the scripture is teaching. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 13, you're going to see something very interesting. Let's take our Bible. We go there right now. Revelation chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Now, what's remarkable is that the book of Daniel was written about prophecy and the book of Revelation was written about prophecy. I like to think of the book of Daniel as a woman and the book of Revelation as a man and when you put them together they become one and what you discover about the book of Daniel and Revelation is that when they're put together it becomes one marvelous book about the beauty of Jesus can you say amen to that first Re Revelation chapter 13 verse 1 Revelation chapter 13 verse 1 are we there okay I'm catching up okay now watch what John sees right here 
Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten what? Horns. John is only seeing one beast this time, but watch how he describes this beast. It's very remarkable. Now, the beast which I saw was like a what? Leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a what? Lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and its deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with him? Folks, I want you to see some of the characteristics of this. This is so remarkable. God put the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation to be a hand-in-glove fit, a key that unlocks the mystery of the future. Now watch this. When Daniel was writing his prophecies about the four beasts, he was looking forward. He was living during the time of Babylon. So he was describing the lion, the bear, then the leopard, and this crazy-looking beast. Now, when John was living and he was writing the book of Revelation, who put John on the island of Patmos? It was actually the Roman authorities. John the, ba John the Revelator, excuse me, was going around preaching the gospel, and actually we have some extra-biblical material about this, where some Roman authorities tried to kill John the disciple, the last living disciple, the youngest disciple, tried killing him, putting him in burning oil, and he came out untouched. He was not even hurt in the slightest bit. The Roman authorities were so shocked by this, they were persecuting all the Christians, but when they tried to kill this leader in the church and realized they couldn't kill him, what they did is they sentenced him to the island of Patmos. And it was there that John was given the vision of Revelation. But watch this. What John saw in describing that beast, he was actually looking backwards. John was describing the various characteristics of those animals, and he described it in the time of Rome. And so Daniel was looking forward in Scripture, and John was looking backwards in Scripture. And what you begin to discover is that Daniel and John were talking about the same power. Now we have some more characteristics given to us about the Antichrist power. Let's take a good look at this. He rises up out of the sea, the Bible says. He receives power, sea, and authority from the who? Dragon. And by the way, when Satan is called the dragon in Scripture, what is he usually being? Aggressive or forceful. When Satan is called a serpent in Scripture, he is usually being deceptive and sneaky. So he receives his power, see, and authority from the dragon. Look what else. He's a worldwide power. He's guilty of blasphemy. The Bible teaches, if you read Revelation 13, he rules 42 prophetic months. He has a deadly wound that heals. He is a religious power that receives worship. And that's obvious because if they receive worship, that makes it very clear that there's some type of religious power. And you also discover that he persecutes God's saints. All right, now we're going to talk about the 10 characteristics. I apologize if you're already writing down 10 characteristics of the Antichrist. This is actually what we describe the 10 characteristics of the Antichrist power found in Scripture. Here we go. Number one, there, he rises up out of the sea. Number two, he plucks up three kingdoms after divided Rome. So we're looking for a power that's going to come up right after divided Rome. And then he's a religious power that receives worship. We also discover he rules for 42 prophetic months because in Bible prophecy, a day equals a year. Amen. And we also discover some more characteristic, he, characteristics. He persecutes God's saints. We discover he intends to change times of law. He's called a lost one because he has a problem with what? God's law. Amen. We also discover he speaks pompous words, blasphemous words against the Most High. He has a deadly wound that is healed. And we also discover the whole world wanders after them. But there's one more characteristic the Bible teaches. We discover that that characteristic is 666. Now something that's very interesting about the Antichrist is this. The devil never makes a $3 counterfeit bill. When is the last time you've ever seen a $3 counterfeit bill? 
you don't see a $3 counterfeit bill because anybody who's got a little bit of common sense knows that there is no such thing as a $3, common, $3 bill. But when someone is trying to counterfeit U.S. bills, they're going to counterfeit $5 bills. They're going to counterfeit $10 bills. They're going to counterfeit $1 bills because what they're trying to do is get as close as they can to the original. So when the devil is trying to use this antichrist power, he is setting up this antichrist to resemble the real deal. Remember we learned in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that marvel not for Satan himself transforms into an angel of light. And if you read the rest of the verse, the Bible says, and his ministers are transformed into ministers of righteousness. The devil never comes as this goat-footed, hooven foot, I don't know what you want to call it, and with wings, the bat wings, and he's there with the leotards and horns and a pitchfork. No, no. The Bible teaches that he's a glorious angel of light. And when he comes, he's deceptively close to the real deal. Deceptively close to the real deal. And we're going to discover these characteristics are going to point us very clearly to only one power. But I want to stop and I want to do something very special right here. I want us to pray. You know why it's important to pray? Because Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 17, If any man desires to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it be of God or man. What God is saying, that if you really sincerely seek to do his will, you're going to discover whether or not a teaching is from God or from man. So right now, we're going to pray and ask that we would seek God's will. Let's bow our heads one more time. Father in heaven, as we continue with this topic, we ask, Lord, for humble hearts. God, this is a serious subject, and we need the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. And God, we just pray and ask that your will would be first and foremost in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin now. Antichrist identifier, number one, we learn that the Antichrist beast rises out of the sea. That's what Revelation 13 says. The book of Revelation also describes what seas represent in Scripture. Watch what the Bible says. The waters which thou saw are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So here we begin to discover that this Antichrist power, whoever he is or whatever he is, will rise out of a people group. He will rise out of a people group. Okay? Now let's look at the second identifier of the Antichrist. We will discover that he plucked up three kingdoms after divided Rome. After divided Rome. Now this is very obvious because this will lead us proof positive to who the Antichrist is. The ten horns, as it says in Daniel chapter 7 verse 24. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise after Rome. And another shall rise after them. And he shall be different from the first ones. And shall subdue three kings. Do you remember after Rome broke up there were ten tribes exactly what Bible prophecy had said. You have the Ostrogoths, the Hurls, the Vandals, the Franks, the Aluminians, the Swaves, the Anglo-Saxons, the Visigoths, the Lombards, and the Burgundians. We learned that this Antichrist power would destroy three of these kingdoms. And folks, you look at history, you'll discover there was only one power that took out the Ostrogoths, one power that took out the Hurls, one power that took out the Vandals. We discovered that this power was none other than Papal Rome. What the Bible teaches is that pagan Rome turned into papal Rome, and papal Rome was given power in the early 500s. But what was very interesting is that it wasn't until these three tribes were taken out of the way that the papal power was given full power in A.D. 538. One of the reasons why these three tribes were destroyed by the papal army is because they opposed the papal rule. And so what the papacy did under the emperor's power is gather an army and destroy three of those tribes. And folks, only seven tribes remain today. Germany, France, and several other European nations still to this day. But those three tribes were wiped out. They don't exist at all today. Exactly what Bible prophecy said would take place, and it did under the papal Rome power. Now folks, in identifying the papacy, we need to understand something. God loves Catholic people. Can you say amen to that? But it is the system that God has a problem with. God absolutely 
100% loves Catholic people and there's going to be Catholic people in heaven. But folks, we need to understand something that when a system is completely contrary to the scripture and leads people away from the truth of the scripture, God has a big problem with it. And we begin to discover that this papal Rome empire fits every one of those descriptions. Take a good look at what Edward Gibbon says, a renowned historian. He says this, he talks about his book, in a book, a graphic description of the campaign of Belisarius against the Vandals and Ostrogoths, resulting in their defeat and overthrow. Thus, three Aryan nations, the Hulai, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, refused to renounce their heretical faith, were uprooted or subdued, and the other Aryan peoples turned Orthodox, leaving the Bishop Rome or the Pope, the undisputable, undisputed ruler of nations and the corrector of heretics. How completely the prophecy was fulfilled. We also discover in this book called The Rise of the Medieval Church, the Bishop of Rome, again talking about the papacy or the Pope, in the seat of the Caesars was now the greatest man in the West and was soon forced to become the political as well as the spiritual head. To the Western world, Rome was still the political capital. Hence, the whole habit of mind, all ambition, pride, and sense of glory, and ever social prejudice, favored the evolution of the great city into the ecclesiastical capital. Civil as well as religious disputes were referred to the successor of Peter for settlement. What took place when Rome was divided? One power rose up in the midst of the ten tribes and began to dominate the scene, and it was none other than the papal Rome power. Folks, when you take a good look at the papacy, when you take a good look at the Vatican, what you begin to discover is that they are respected all over the world. The papal power has millions of followers. It's not just considered a political state. It's, even it's not just a religious state. It's considered a political state. Many leaders throughout the world will consult the papacy when it comes to direction and guidance. And what you discover is that this little horn power of Daniel chapter 7 has a very unusual past and a future as well. We learned that the Antichrist identifier number 3, he would be a religious power that receives worship. Not only are the priests of Catholicism revered, but as well as the papal power, the papal head, the Pope himself. They are kissed. They are uh, reverenced, they are worshipped as if they are God themselves. Folks, I want you to understand something. There is only one God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. And we worship him. Amen? We learn an Antichrist identifier, number four. He would rule for exactly 42 prophetic months, exactly what scripture says, and it's so remarkable. We learn that 42 months is simply 1,260 days. That's what it is. And in Bible prophecy, a day equals a year. You can read the verse in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6. And 1,260 days equals 1,260 what? Years. And exactly on time, the papal power lost his power. From 538 AD, when the three tribes were conquered and the papal power reigned supreme, they lost their power in exactly AD 1798, Exactly 1,260 years according to Bible prophecy. Can you say amen to that? God is never wrong. Amen? And the Bible says in Titus that God never lies. Can you say amen to that? Take a good look at this. The worldwide power, Papal Rome, became official in A.D. 538 when Emperor Justin, Justin, Justinian decree made the papacy supreme was no longer opposed. The papacy was dealt what appeared to be a death blow in 1798 when the Pope was captured by Napoleon's general, Alexander Berthier. You will notice that the time period between A.D. 538 and 1798 is precisely 1,260 years. The papal power was given power in 538 A.D., but when France came on the scene, they stripped the Pope of his power exactly in 1798. And when you look at that time, that's exactly 1,260 years. In fact, there were so many people who understood this prophecy that in the year 1798, they predicted exactly what would happen to the papal power. Exactly what would happen to the papal power. Because on that last year, what the Bible says... Sure enough, the papacy was stripped of not only his political power, but all his influence as well. 
This was David Simpson, a man who was actually living during that time. He was a theologian. And watch what he says. It's very remarkable. This prophecy is so well known. It is, is it not extremely remarkable and a powerful confirmation of the truth of Scripture prophecy that just 1260 years ago, from the present 1798, this is exactly in 1798 when he wrote this, in the very beginning of the year 538, Belisarius put an end to the emperor of the gods at Rome, leaving no power therein but the bishop of the metropolis, talking about the papacy and how it was given power. Read these things, he says, in prophetic scriptures, and then I will say again, deny the truth of divine revelation if you can. Open your eyes and behold these things accomplishing in the face of the whole world. Now watch what he says at the very end. These things are not done in a corner. There were so many different reformers and Protestants living at that time. They knew what Bible prophecy was saying. And in the year 1798, there was a stir because they knew that the papal power, this corrupt power that had persecuted so many different states, was coming to an end. Was coming to an end in 1798. We also discovered the Antichrist identifier number five, that this power would persecute saints of the Most High. You learn that the Church of Rome, talking about the Roman Church, had actually shed more innocent blood than any other institution that ever existed among mankind will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. Did you know that it was during the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, they call it the Dark Ages because the Bible was actually removed from the population and placed in dungeons and in sacred libraries and that no one had no more access to the Bible. In fact, the Bible during the Dark Ages was outlawed, hence they called it the Dark Ages because nobody had the light of Scripture. And it was during the Dark Ages that a lot of corruption began to enter into the church. And it was during that time a lot of persecution began to take place as well. Through, during the Dark Ages, it is estimated that the papacy tortured and killed 50 million Christians. These were beaten, mutilated, burned, crushed with weights, impaled, and nailed to trees. Several different reformers were burned at the stake. Some were sawed in half. Some were put in animal skins and were tossed off around wild dogs as they killed them. And folks, a lot of things take place. And by the way, there are some estimates that go up to over 100 million believers were actually killed during the Dark Ages by the papal power. Now, why is that remarkable? Because today, a lot of people dismiss that history. A lot of people today don't look at history and see very clearly what the Bible is teaching about the Dark Ages. This time when this little horn power would reign supreme. A lot of people just sort of skip over the fact that millions upon millions upon millions of Christians were martyred during the Dark Ages. None other by, except by the papal power. By the papal power. Even Martin Luther, and you'll discover that several different reformers had identified the papal power as the Antichrist, and they didn't just identify it from experience, they identified it from Scripture. Now watch what Martin Luther says, the founder of the Lutheran Church, nothing else except the kingdom of Babylon and of the very Antichrist. For who is the man of sin and the son of perdition? But he who by his teaching and his ordinances increases the sin and perdition of souls in the church while he yet sits in the church as if he were God. All these conditions, watch what he says, have now for many ages been fulfilled by the papal tyranny. tyranny excuse me. Even I read this earlier quote by Martin Luther. He said, I am convinced from scripture that the papal power is none other than the little horn power of Daniel chapter 7. Watch what John Calvin says, the founder of the Presbyterian church. I deny him to be the vicar of Christ, who in furiously persecuting the gospel demonstrates by his conduct that he is antichrist. And I should show that in Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, are not capable of any other interpretation than that which applies to the papacy. All the reformers knew it because they were living through the dark ages. They knew what the scriptures were teaching. They knew that it clearly pointed to the papal power, folks. But unfortunately today in, in history classes, unfortunately today when it comes to society, we just dismiss it as if it's nothing. But these are the very things that reformers died for. And they're rolling around their proverbial graves. But we know they're sleeping. Amen? John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, said this. 
He is, in emphatical sense, the man of sin, as he increases all manner of sin above measure, and he is, too properly styled, the son of perdition, as he has caused the death of numberless multitudes, both of his opposers and followers. He it is that exalts above all that is called God or that is worshipped, claiming the highest power and highest honor, claiming the prerogatives which belong to God alone. John Wycliffe completed the first English translation of the Bible. Look what he says. Why is it necessary in unbelief to look for another Antichrist? Hence, in the seventh chapter of Daniel, Antichrist is forcefully described by a horn rising in the time of the fourth kingdom. Therefore, the ten horns are the whole of our temporal rulers, 20 of the ten tribes, and the horn has risen from the ten horns, having eyes and a mouth speaking great things against the lofty one and wearing out the saints of the Most High and thinking that he's able to change times and laws. For so our clergy foresee the Lord Pope as it is said of the eighth blaspheming little head. Over and over again, you begin to discover all the reformers had pointed very clearly that this was the Antichrist power. Look what Roger Williams says, the first Baptist pastor in America. He spoke of the Pope as the pretended vicar of Christ on earth, who sits as God over the temple of God, exalting himself, not only above all that is called God, but over the souls and consciences, of all his vassals, yea, over the spirit of Christ, over the Holy Spirit, yea, over God himself, and speaking against the God of heaven, thinking to change times and law, but he is the son of perdition. Over and over again, all the reformers pointed very clearly from Scripture that this was the Antichrist power prophesied in Scripture. Watch what is said right here by this powerful book called The Great Controversy, a book about the reformers. The Pacific tone of Rome in the United States does not imply a change of heart. This was actually written by a Catholic cardinal or bishop. She is tolerant where she is helpless, says Bishop O'Connor. Religious liberty is merely endured until the opposite can be carried into effect without peril to the Catholic world. The Archbishop of St. Louis once said, Heresy and unbelief are crimes. And in Christian countries, as in Italy and Spain, for instance, where all the people are Catholics, and where the Catholic religion is a central part of the law of the land, they are punished as other crimes. In other words, what we may see in America is simply a passive tone of the Antichrist power. We may see, some, see somebody who is just a, seemingly a, a role model for the world about peace and all about love. But folks, I want you to understand something. This is because the conditions of the world are different. And if they are changed, it's been very clear from the Catholics themselves, from the very leaders of the church themselves, that their, their behavior would change as well. Their behavior would change as well. And folks, we need to make this very clear. When it comes to this system, God has a problem with the system. He loves the people in the system. Amen? The Bible says in Revelation 18, Come out of Babylon, my what? People. God has people in Babylon. He even calls them my people. God absolutely 100% loves Catholics, but folks, he wants to call you out of error, and he wants to call you into the beautiful truth of who he is. Can you say amen to that? Antichrist identifier number six, he intends to change times and laws. What you will discover if you were to take a catechism book, you will discover, and if you go to different Catholic churches, that the fourth commandment has been changed, and the second commandment has actually been deleted. It actually has been deleted. Watch what, the, watch what the Catholic leaders themselves say in describing the Pope's power. The Pope is of great authority and power that he is able to modify, declare, or interpret even divine laws. The Pope can modify divine laws since his power is not a man but of God and he acts as a vestigerant of God upon earth. You take a good look at the commandments and you'll find that the second commandment, the commandment that has to do with idolatry, was deleted. The fourth commandment was simplified. And the last commandment was simply split into another commandment. And just to make sure there was ten commandments. But folks, can you change the law of God? Absolutely not, because it was written in what? Stone. And folks, God put the ten commandments for us as the rule of life. And the reason why we keep the Ten Commandments, not because we're saved by them, but it's because of a response to salvation. Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, one day I was talking to this woman, and she says, we don't have to keep God's law. Jesus didn't keep God's law. 
And I said, wait a second, you're saying that Jesus didn't keep God's law? She said, yep. And I said, all right, take your Bible. I'm going to show you something. So watch this. Take your Bible. And I'm, I'm talking to you too. Go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Are we there? Okay, now I want you to go to verse 10. John chapter 15, verse 10. John chapter 15, verse 10. Now watch what Jesus says right here. If you love me, keep my what? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now watch this. Just as I have kept what? My Father's what? Commandments. So did Jesus keep the law of God. Absolutely, absolutely, Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. He kept his Father's law. And folks, we need to understand something, that you can't change the law of God. But unfortunately, because of this system, a lot of idolatry has actually entered into the Roman church system. And people who, are, people who love God are falling into this act of worshiping idols. They're falling into this act of worshiping Mary. But folks, there is only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. Amen? John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by Mary. Is that what it says? No, except by me, Jesus says. We don't need another mediator for the mediator of God. There is only one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? Unfortunately, when you do look at a lot of Catholic artistry, what you will find is a solemn picture of Jesus. Because they believe that Jesus himself cannot be approached. And you will never see, it is a rare thing to see actually Jesus smiling. What you will see him is very solemn looks. And you will often see Mary is the one who is smiling. Because what they are indicating is that Mary is more favorable towards humanity than Jesus is. But folks, Mary's blessed. But do you remember what Jesus said? More blessed are the people of God who hear the word of God and keep it. That's exactly right. You take a good look at this statue found in the Vatican, and what you'll discover is that this statue was actually from the Roman pantheon where this god was actually Jupiter. He was taken, transported all the way to the Vatican, made a little bit of adjustments, and now he became Peter. You also discover the Antichrist identifier, number seven. He had a deadly wound, but was healed. He had a deadly wound, but was healed. You said, wait a second, Anel. Didn't you just say the Antichrist power lost all of its power in 538? Did. But the Bible makes it very clear that this wound would be healed. And sure enough, watch what takes place in the New York Times, Tuesday, February 12, 1929. Power was restored back to the Roman church system by Italy. The Pope is, again, an independent sovereign ruler as he was throughout the Middle Ages, through his temporal realm, established state is the most microscopic, independent state in the world and probably the smallest in all history. And interesting enough, if you were to take the news clippings of those days, when this actual uh, reunification took place, what you will discover is even prophetic words. Heal wound of many years. Exactly what the Bible says. This wound would be healed. This wound would be healed. Number eight, the whole world wandered after this power. Folks, you look out into the world and what you will discover that this man, the papal power, the Pope, is very revered and respected, not just by Catholics, but by several Christians, by political figures, by even Hindus and Muslims themselves. What you will discover is that whenever there's a problem, the papal power is contacted, the Pope is contacted, and he makes a visit and calls for peace. But folks, here's the thing. We need to make sure that we follow the man Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? We also discovered the Antichrist identifier number 9. 666, the Bible teaches, would be his number. That's from Revelation chapter 13, the last two verses. And you will see something very interesting. You will see one of the titles for the papal is the Vicaris Philidae, which simply means one who takes the place of the Son of God. And in Roman numerals, this adds up to 666. In fact, with this title, it describes even that term, Antichrist. Do you remember what Antichrist means? Not just one who's opposing Christ, but one who's trying to 
take the place of Christ. And you can find out, this is actually a letter, letter, a letter, a letter written, excuse me, need some water, a letter written by a renowned cardinal indicating that is absolutely his, one of his titles. In fact, it's worn on his mitre cap. Number 10, he would speak pompous words and he would blaspheme. Now, if you take a good look, you'll see what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says about this power. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come first unless the, what's that next word? Falling away comes first. What was Paul saying about the falling away or the apostatizing? What he was describing in the early church is where several of the people, the early church, the leaders were apostatizing from the truth. And he was telling the, the people in Thessalonica, he says, look, the second coming is not going to take place unless the Antichrist, until the Antichrist, is exposed. And then Paul was saying, it's already starting. It was already starting. Is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes, now watch this, and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And these are quotes from Catholic literature, from Catholic leaders themselves. I want you to see it. There's the, the proof for itself right there. We, the popes, hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. But folks, can anybody take the place of God Almighty? No. This is from the Catholic National. The pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ, himself hidden under the veil of flesh. Folks, there's only one Jesus. Can you say amen to that? There is only one Jesus. This is what John Paul II says. The leader of the Catholic Church is defined by the faith as the vicar of Jesus Christ and is accepted as such by believers. The Pope is considered the man on earth who takes the place of the second person of the omnipotent God of the Trinity. Folks, do you remember what Antichrist means? One who tries to take the place of Christ. And sure enough, there's only one power in the world that has put more effort in trying to take the place of Christ, and it's none other than the papal power themselves. This is also from more Catholic literature. And God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priests, either and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. Folks, the Bible makes it very clear that you don't need to confess your sins to a priest. The Bible makes it very clear that these priests do not have power to forgive sins. The Bible makes it very clear that there is only one alone on earth who can forgive sins. Can you say amen to that? There's only one on earth, the Bible teaches, who can wash away your iniquities. And the Bible says in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's faithful, amen, and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, one day I was talking to this young lady, and she had this heavy burden on her heart, a heavy burden on her heart. And she said, I was involved in a car accident a few years ago. She says, I was with them, somebody else. I wasn't the driver, but I was encouraging them to speed. It was a car race. And what took place is they ended up crashing and killing an innocent person. And she bore the guilt of it. And still to this day, she carries a heavy burden. And she says, I can't get rid of this guilt. I don't know what to do to get rid of this guilt. And I said, I got the cure. She said, what's the cure? I said, just, it's just one thing. But this is the cure. I said, take your Bible. And I showed her 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If any man confesses his sin, he's faithful. God is faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The Bible makes it very clear that it is only by the grace of God, by the blood of the Lamb, that we can be forgiven. Amen? And that is who we confess our sins to. God gives us grace. God gives us grace. And if we come to Him just as we are, and we say, Lord, I want you to wash away all my sins. I want you just to clean me. The Bible teaches, according to the power of His Word, He's faithful and just to do it. There may be something in your life that you don't have peace about. There may be something in your life today that you are struggling with. And what God is promising today, that you can have forgiveness. You can have the peace of God.
by simply bringing it before the Lord and say, God, I am a sinner. And when you do that, the Lord places his arms of love around you and he washes away your sins. God is trying to save us from error. No man on earth can save us. Amen? We have only one Savior, one mediator. There's only one being in this entire universe that can save us, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And folks, the Lord wants to save you. God wants you in heaven. He wants you to know the peace of God that passes all understanding. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that it's only the blood of Jesus. And God, that's what we need tonight. Lord, we just want to confess our hearts to you. God, you're the only one who can save us. No man on earth can save us. No priest on earth can save us. But it is only the righteousness of Christ. Father, you are the true Christ. And we just pray and ask that the blood of the Lamb would cover our sins. And there's somebody tonight who is struggling with some sin in their life, God. Just pray in this moment of silence, God, that they would bring it before you. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the blood of the Lamb. Thank you so much that when we do confess our sins, God, you are faithful and just to forgive us. Thank you for the peace of God that passes understanding. And Lord, we pray that may we walk out tonight, that we be encouraged and strengthened. And bring us back again tomorrow night, Lord, to learn more about this power. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.